Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, as usual, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I talk to people about the five things that they would like to put into a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to have again or keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Gabrielle Glaister, who began her career in the 1980s. Gabrielle is probably best known for her role as Patricia Farnham in the long-running British soap opera Brookside, and Trish Wallace in Family Affairs. She was also Bob, or Kate, in several episodes of Blackadder. And she's had notable roles in other British television shows, including Coronation Street, The Bill, Law and Order UK, New Tricks, Upstart Crow, Sherlock, Unforgotten and Doctors, as well as the role of Hilary Benshaw in Emmerdale. In addition to her television work, Gabrielle has appeared in several films, including Buddy's Song, with Roger Daughtry and Chesney Hawkes, that spawned the number one hit, The One and Only. Gabby has performed in lots of theatre productions, both in the UK and internationally. She played the title role in a stage production of Oliver Twist, alongside Ben Elton as the Artful Dodger, when they were both young, of course, and the comedy play Daisy Pulls It Off. Gabrielle's been nominated for Best Actress at the Manchester Evening News Theatre Awards and Best Actress at the British Soap Awards. So, will any of that find its way into her time capsule? Or are there other things that she either cherishes or hates more? This is the time capsule of Gabrielle Glaister. I hope you have fun. 
Hello. Hello. How are you? All right. I'm very well. I have to say I live in the least recording friendly flat on the planet. So <laughs> yeah. I've got trains, I've got Victorian windows, I've got a playground over there. So there you go. No, it's all right. It's real life, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not aiming to be in, uh, in studio conditions, really. I'm so technophobic. I'd rather always go. I mean, it gives me a nervous breakdown, anything to do with this. <laughs> I can just about manage my Pilates on Zoom and that's kind of it. But... <laughs> In fact, Nikki Stevenson, who I know you've done yeah. the thingy with, the sometime during lockdown, I did a thing for Big Finish, you know, one of those mm-hmm. drama things. And I went to Nikki's because she had, under her kid's bunk bed, she'd made like a studio under her <laughs> bunk bed. But you had to, you know, I had to have her computer. I Honestly, I have never been so stressed. <laughs> I had no fucking idea what I was doing. But you popped back into Coronation Street, didn't you? I did, yeah. I did about three or four months last year. Yeah. Wow, how brilliant. And how long had you been out of it? I was a different character. Oh, OK. <laughs> it was 20 years. So at the same time I was on screen last year, I was on classic Corrie playing someone else, <laughs> which Nicola Stevenson's mother got really quite annoyed about. <laughs> yes. Well, you can't be that. You can't be both. What's she doing? <laughs> it's because I played Jane Hazelgrove's doppelganger. We'd been mistaken for each other for 30 years. You easily. do look similar. I mean, we sort of don't, but there's something. I remember an actor called Tom Mannion coming home from working on a job years ago and going, Gabby, I've worked with this girl and there's just something about her. Mm-hmm. So some of the time in Corrie, I was being Jane fraudulently and some of the time I was just being the person who looked like, oh, it was brilliant fun. Brilliant. It was brilliant. What gave her the idea? Is it because people... Because people come up and you go, you know, can I have your autograph? Can I have a selfie? And after it, you go, no, I'm not in casualty. <laughs> you go, oh. or, or Jane will go, somebody, somebody will go, you were so good in that thing the other night. And you go, I wasn't in that thing. And they go, no, you were. And then you IMDB it and go, Hell, it's her again. <laughs> so I think we, were, we just had enough of that, really. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Bizarrely, I get mistaken for Jon Snow, the newsreader. I, I bump into him sometimes down the road, but it's the white hair, but he's white hair. really tall. Really tall. And a long, long face. A long, long face. Doesn't look anything like me. I once had a taxi driver insist that I got out of the taxi. He was so angry with me. He said, All right, now, you come on. All right, now, if you're going to be like that about it. I said, I'm not him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all right, isn't it, when you're making all the money, but you don't want people to recognise you. Go on, out. <laughs> Just go, thank you very much. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, from now on, I think that would make sense. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for giving me your time and uh, for thinking about things you'd want to put in a time capsule. Have you ever done, I was in a play called The Real Thing, the Tom Stoppard play, Yeah. and one of the opening scenes is the guy, he's having to choose his desert island discs and he's nearly having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and I've always thought I would nearly have, I couldn't, I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. No. So I know this is fun, but it's still quite hard. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, let's see what they are. Let's find out the five things you want to put in a time capsule from your life. Right. Well, I'll start with a thing I want to keep, um, amateur dramatics. Oh, right, yeah. Did you start in that? I did start in it, and my mother and my father, that was life, you know, that was their social life. I grew up in a place called Hazelmere in Surrey, mm. and the group are called the Hazelmere Thespians, and they're still going strong. And they were a very, very good amateur dramatic group. They were. They took it incredibly seriously mm. and they'd go off and do competitions of you know one night plays and things you'd get on a coach and off you'd go but no it was very I mean they were excellent now you look back and you go gosh all those weeks and weeks and weeks of rehearsal and you do a Thursday night a Friday night two shows on Saturday that was it mm. 
but they had um, the Hazelmere Hall, which is a proper theatre with you know, with flies, with a balcony and everything. They had in the local car park, they had the costume store with a man who ran it. Yeah. And there were various people like, um, there was a guy called Chris who made the props, but he worked for the BBC as a prop maker on Doctor Who. So there was lots of sort of semi-professional people, you know, helping out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God, it absolutely inspired my love of the theatre of... The most exciting times were on a Sunday morning after the final Saturday night show, we'd go and help clear up and be able to pick up the sweets because people sometimes would drop sweets. So you'd pick up all the sweet wrappers. And So you were involved from a very early age that you sort of remember your parents doing it. And as a kid, that was it. You were straight in, were you? And I did actually play Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I'll oh. have you know. Thank you very much. Marvellous. Yes, and Cinderella in a panto. And my brother did a couple of bits as a kid. He was supposed to be a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz, but he got mumps. <laughs> Mumpkin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember my father being in Rashomon. I mean, they, put, they did really, it wasn't all, you know, farce and, no. and a proper full-on panto. I mean, I actually don't like panto very much, but a proper panto every mm. year. Wonderful set. Amazing costumes. It's amazing how many companies there are like that still around the country with people putting an enormous amount of time into it. The great thing about it, I always think, is that as an actor, if you get hired to do something, that's what you do, isn't it? Whereas as an amateur actor, you've all been to work all day. Yeah. It's also such a community thing, Mm. but also camaraderie. And especially, like you say, they're not all actors. So, you know, you've got a civil engineer and you've got someone who works in the newspaper shop and they're all in this thing together. Yeah. And I always think that actually sometimes particularly in the West End, you may well be paying so much for the star name in a show. And actually, this is a difficult thing to say as a professional actor, but the standard of acting is not necessarily universally as good throughout a professional play as it might well be in an amateur production, because there are a lot of good, really good amateur actors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I was involved with an amateur theatre group when I was a young boy. Oh, where you were? In Bromley, at the Bromley Little Theatre. And I still look back on some of the people I worked with then, when I was sort of 15, 16, 17. And I think that some of them were getting on to being some of the best actors I've ever worked with. Yes, I could, I could actually name the ones I remember. And my mother, much later in life, she was a music teacher, but in her 50s, went and joined a theatre and education company and got her equity card and things. So Uh she did eventually do it for a while, you know, professionally. Yes, a friend of mine did exactly that from that theatre group, an actress called Barbara Kirby, who I think maybe in her late 40s, even possibly her 50s, she suddenly said, no, I've always wanted to be an actress, I'm going to do it. And she did, she got a card. Next thing I know, she's at the National. No. Yeah. That's so brilliant. Mm. It's a bit like when you hear about people starting writing when they're older. Yeah. Mary Wesley and people like that, you know, and you go, oh, my God, you wrote your first novel in your 60s. Mm. And makes me feel quite lazy, really. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's still time when you reach that age. Yes. (laughs) Yes. For both of us. Yes. (laughs) Rather lovely, at Barbara Kirby's funeral, Mark Gatiss turned up. Oh, my goodness. Mm. So she'd gone and got herself an agent, presumably, and yep. all those things. Yeah, what a risk to take. Yeah. But I love the fact that there are a lot of people who love acting, love doing it, but don't want it to become their profession, don't want to make it a job. They want to do it as a pastime. And that doesn't mean that the standard is not as good, I think. No, 
And maybe that's people who can't face the awful realities of being in our business, mm. being unemployed and let down constantly. And yeah. And also, if you like acting, you know, with an amateur company, if you join a number... You're going to get the part. You're going to do it yeah. every month. You can fit in five, six plays a year. Great. Mind you, I was thinking this morning, where's an actor you can't anymore? My nephew's about to leave drama school. Mm. at Guildhall. Poor sod. And, um, <laughs> and um, I was thinking, because I was thinking I was in red. And then you did get to do all those plays when you rehearsed all day and you did loads of acting. And now the poor young things, they ain't got that no. to go to. Now, in a way, what it is is a chance to make lots of mistakes. It, it is, and be cast in things you're not necessarily right for. Mm. You know, whereas now you're cast because you look like exactly what they had in their head or whatever, not because you're versatile, not because you could bend to something. No, you never get the chance to do a really bad Scottish accent now, do you? I do on audiobooks. I do loads <laughs> of absolutely rubbish accents. <laughs> <laughs> that is the world, isn't it, where, in fact, now we do get the chance to just go, well, I'm going to have a go at it. You know. Yeah, sometimes with some minor characters, I haven't even decided what I'm going to do until I open my mouth. And go, oh, hello, you're Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> I've done things with aliens, and you have no Ooh. idea what that's going to be. You know that thing where you catch yourself halfway through something and suddenly think, oh, my God, I'm really stupid. Yeah, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? I could have had a proper job. <laughs> yeah, I once did a gnome in a it, – it was only a table read for an animation film. And because I was playing lots of different characters and I was only there for the table read, you know, a few bob, a friend of mine was directing it. And I think I did it like that. <laughs> and, and then they went, actually, we, we might be casting you. And I had to go and do that for two whole days. <laughs> I couldn't sustain it. I'd never have done that if I thought I had to do it for more than five minutes. <laughs> and then they used Joan Collins instead of me. <laughs> oh, no. How did your mum get on then, suddenly doing it professionally? I think she enjoyed it. She did. She did some strange tours with people like Nicholas Parsons, you know, sort of doing small parts yeah. in sort of those comedies. I can't even remember what they were. Yeah, but my mum was a bit eccentric. She then decided to become an agent when she was 60-odd. <laughs> yeah, don't even... That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. did your dad just carry on as an amateur? Or, or? No, no, he never... Oh, no, I'm saying that. They divorced. He went to live in France mm. eventually. And he still did. He did English pantos in France <laughs> at the Christmas. I never got to see one, I have to say. Right. But so he still did some andram in France with the expats. Yeah. Wow. Maybe that's why you hate pantomime. Yeah. No, I don't like panto. They're quite long, aren't they? Mm, they are. <laughs> when my son was little, we used to take him to Hackney Empire, which is a brilliant panto. But dear God, it's long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt that when I went to the RSC. I thought, oh, God, doesn't he write a lot? I can't stand long plays. <laughs> I don't see the reason for it, really. No, I agree. Yeah. Don't have two intervals. What are you on about? <laughs> Actually, do one act with no interval. Yeah, the perfect play, art. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm talking myself out again, casting loads of things here. Yeah, but, you know, you can always go back. <laughs> there they are. They're still going strong. Have you been to see them at all? I did a look quite a long time ago when I think I was doing Brookside and I went to some sort of celebration and they asked me if I'd sing somewhere over the rainbow because I'd sung it as Dorothy. <laughs> and I went, no, because I couldn't think of anything more terrifying and awful. <laughs> one sort of middle-aged woman going, um, where? <laughs> I said, no. But I did go. Yeah. 
I occasionally drive past where Bromley Little Theatre is, and it's still there. And I think it would be nice to go in, but you can guess by the name. It was a really small theatre, had a tiny right. stage. We did Salad Days. I love Salad Days. Yeah. I love that musical. And yet that has a cast of about 20 and we all crammed on the stage and did dance routines. What I remember is everybody basically kicking everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant fun. Well, I'm very, very happy to put the Hazelmere Thespians. Yeah. And in they go, en masse. And unlike everybody thinks, all being very nice to each other and all having a fantastic time, rather than all bitching away and saying, I should have got that part. Oh, no, I think there was really quite a lot of that. But maybe uh, uh, that's part of the fun. Part of the social world of it all. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Okay, that's number one. So what's the second thing you'd like to put into the time capsule? Well, the second thing, I'll try really hard not to cry because it really did make me cry. It's, It's a little box I've got, which was given to me by someone else you've had on your podcast called Anne Bryson, Mm -hmm. when my son was born. He's 19 now, he's off to university, and it just it's a little tiny cardboard box which says for a beautiful baby on it. Now, I, w- I was going to say I want, well, I do want to keep it, but I opened it earlier just to look, and I knew it had like his little tiny wristband, you know, when you're in hospital saying baby Glaister oh. and random teeth. <laughs> and then there was a thing from my mum and lovely stepdad, sadly dead and died in the last couple of years, there's a little identity bracelet, little tiny gold identity bracelet with Clement's name on it. I'd forgotten about it. Nearly made me just go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, Lord, yeah. Yeah. But, oh, and it's got his first Christmas list in it. Oh. It's, it's the first one he could write. That made me feel really bad as well because it said I want a dog and I was promised him a dog and I never got him a dog because I live in a two-bedroom flat. So it's <laughs> actually been quite traumatic opening that. A terrible one. Oh, hang on a minute. Somebody's calling me. I'll, I'll, I'll turn my phone off. Oh, typical, isn't it? I'm supposed to be the one that's organised. <laughs> there we are. So how long ago is it since you last looked in that box then? must be years. It lives on my chest of drawers. It's just there. Mm-hmm. I did know there were teeth in it. And oddly enough, <laughs> when I was looking through my knicker drawer earlier, <laughs> I found there was another envelope with more bloody teeth in it. <laughs> I thought it's nice, it's nice of your show if I keep the little box rather than my knicker drawer. Um, <laughs> but... I can't get rid of his milk teeth, but I don't quite know what the heck you're supposed to do with them. Also, there's a lock of his hair in there from the first time I cut it, which is a bit Victorian. He's got dark hair now, but he had white blonde hair then, you know, so... Why did Anne give you uh, to celebrate the birth of your child? Yes, yeah, to put keepsakes in, I guess, Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what you did? I did. What else did he want for Christmas? A dog? I can't really read it. His writing wasn't very good. <laughs> I think things were to do with Pokemon. Yeah. I could look, actually. I, I don't think I can read it very well because he'd only just started writing. It's like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good attempt. It's a good attempt. A something game. No, I can't understand anything. <laughs> a Mario. Mario on 3DS. There you go. Ooh. And we. And how old is he now? He's 19 and still playing computer games just as much, so, <laughs> yeah. He's 19 and at university, so mm. I'm in my first year of empty nesting. So. Oh, that's a very odd time, isn't it? It's weird. It's not nice, I don't think. I mean, it's nice for them, and it's absolutely necessary. I've, I know I found it quite hard because I've only got one, you know. Mm. And you suddenly go, oh, what do I do now? Yeah? Yeah. What is my purpose? Yeah, what is my purpose? Especially, and it's fine when you're working, but if you're you're then at any point not working and not 
doing hands-on mothering, I think it's really tricky. You really do go, well, who am I then? Yes. What am I? Yeah, no, I remember my daughter going off to university. It's one of the most upsetting things I've ever had. Oh, yeah. It's like a bereavement. Mm. For me, it was, I mean, my partner said, well, I don't know why you're missing him so much. He's always in his bedroom. But (laughs) I know he's there. You know, they're just there. And, you know, you think what they'd like to have for their dinner. And to me, it felt a bit like a like a nightmare come true because when when they're born you can't imagine ever being apart from them no ever again and then it happens i mean i'm going to see him tomorrow so that's that's all right (laughs) he's in newcastle he seemed to go quite a long way away oh newcastle well that would be exciting he'll come back down and sort of not need to wear any coats or anything it'd be great no, there will be that. He doesn't drink or anything, though, so he's not going out clubbing. Right. But um, I do like, when I go up and visit him, us to get a drink somewhere sitting outside on the main drag from about five o'clock and just sit there with my glass of wine and go, oh, look at that stag party. Look at those hen parties. Look at those. <laughs> They're just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do like Newcastle a lot. It's a lovely place. Yeah, so do I. And lovely people. I like people who say what they mean. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's a very strange time when they leave home. Well, you've got his teeth. <laughs> yeah, I've got his teeth. You could always either hold them to ransom or clone him. <laughs> yes. Yes, I could. <laughs> well, bless Anne. We'll take that lovely box and we'll dust it. Yeah. Because I know it tends to happen with things that are put on the dresser. Yes, thank you very much. And we'll put it safely inside the time capsule. That's two things. Yeah. Okay, Gabby, what's number three? Now it's time for Hit It, a commercial break. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's ad time. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Unless you're listening to this podcast, having subscribed to Acast Plus, link in the description of this episode, in which case there weren't any ads. And you're now well into the rest of the podcast. For those of us who remain here, let's catch up, shall we, and find out what else Gabrielle Glaister would like to put in her time capsule. Well, it's sort of linked to Anne in a way. Well, not just Anne. Um, I wanted to put in girlfriends, my girlfriends. Lovely. Because I think, 
and I'm not dissing men, and I know a lot of men have very close friendships, but there is something very special about women's friendships. Mm. Your your close group of girlfriends, um, like I have Anne, I have Nicola Stevenson, and, you know, Nick is selfishly away working at the minute, but, oh. you know, just we trudge round the Hampstead Heath, you know, every week, round and round, we did it all through lockdown, you know, in the rain, in the snow, and talk about, well, we can do peak witter. You know, we can we can give a good twenty five minutes to Aldi as a subject, <laughs> but also talking about really important things or deaths of family or relationships, and also all my close girls. And you can go straight from that with my close girlfriends. They're all so brilliantly funny. I mean, they're the match of any funny podcast that you listen to. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I saw a thing actually, which she she said what I think, Lily Tomlin. What's her name? Lily Tomlinson. Yeah. Tomlinson, yeah. With Jane Fonda and Sally Field. And she was talking at something about women to women relationships mm. and how she says, you know, men will talk, but they're often sort of side by side. But women, they look at each other and they properly engage each other in a way that I'm not sure that men always do. No, I'm sure they don't. And I think you can go quite deep with your girlfriends in a way that I know if my partner comes back from a night out with boys, other men, who he's known for years, really good friends, and you go, what did you talk about? And any gossip? No. It's all, you know, what film, I mean, it's great to talk about what film have you seen, but it rarely goes, you go, oh, how is, how is blah? Because I know they've been struggling in their relationship a bit. Oh, didn't ask, don't, don't know. And you go, <laughs> how have you all spent a whole evening together and come back with nothing? Nothing <laughs> at all. I just think, I, I mean, they're, they're another family to me. And I couldn't do without them. And I think they all feel the same as well. Mm. People you could phone up at three o'clock in the morning or who will call you out if you're being prat, you know, or being self-indulgent or worrying about nothing. Yeah, they're just very, very deep friendships, I think. Yeah, do you think it goes right back? I, I wonder if it's almost Neanderthal in its nature, the whole relationship that men have with men and women have with women. It doesn't suit the modern world because men ought to be talking to each other and ought to be dealing with their problems, but they're not. No, they're not. They're talking a lot. There's a lot of articles about men's mental health and communicating. Yeah. I think you're right. Go for a walk with your mate on the heat in the rain and you'll probably sort an awful lot more out than, I don't know, reading yeah. books or going to therapy or what Maybe, have you. but I think the chances are they'll talk about the latest football results or yeah. cricket. I mean, it sounds an awful cliche, but it's true. It is true, yeah. Whereas women absolutely get straight into it. Uh, I had the privilege, and I say it was a privilege, that when my children were very young, my wife was doing um, was studying for a degree. And so she was away all the time. And I used to go to the coffee mornings with the babies. Yeah. So eventually I got accepted into this group of women as sort of an honorary woman. And I used to sit very quietly and not join in, really, because it was fascinating to hear them all talk. And the speed with which they got to subjects that... I've never spoken to my friends about Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think in a way sometimes that um, working with other actors, and we are a breed apart slightly, you can sometimes do the same, like you'll join a company, telly or theatre, and there's a shorthand there as well that you get very intimate, well, <laughs> very intimate, but anyway, <laughs> intimate, um, very, very quickly in a way that people who work in an office or whatever don't. Yes. 
But, well, that's slightly necessary, isn't it? Because in a way, you're going yeah. to reveal yourself to people in yeah. performance. You're going to show sides to yourself that you wouldn't normally show to people. So in a way, yeah. you take away the embarrassment by saying, did I tell you about the time I had my vasectomy? Yeah. And that's sort of what you do, isn't it? You go straight into the deep end. Yeah, yes. But we do have sort of that experience, yes. Yeah. But you have the longevity of those sort of groups of friends. Yeah. I have a male friend who treasures those friendships as much as all the women I know do. Right. So he is very good at keeping those friendships alive and contacting people and checking they're okay. So in a way, he's very feminine about what he does right. with people. But it's unusual amongst men. They, yeah. you know, People don't call, they don't call back. You, you don't help someone who's miserable. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't ring up your mate and go... Well, I suppose you might go, let's go for a pint, but it's not quite the same as... Yes, and then, in fact, the chances are you'll say, oh, come on, cheer up. Well, yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Well, you're very lucky to have your group of friends, so hang on to them. Yeah. Okay, let's put that group of female friends into the time capsule. Thanks. Right, so we've got um, just the two more. Um, the next thing I'm going to keep, and it's really sort of amorphous, and I haven't even got any witty or entertaining stories about it. <laughs> Snorkeling in clear blue sea is my favourite, apart from acting, my favourite thing in the world. Anything to do with water, boats, being by water, lakes, rivers, but especially snorkeling in the Mediterranean is just, or such like, is my idea of bliss. Mm. When did you first do it? Um, probably in my early 20s. Oh. Yeah. I just love that feeling, especially if you're snorkeling over somewhere deep and there's the rocks. And it is the closest thing to flying, I think, you know, because you feel as if you're flying because you're going over land masses. Mm. I did do my paddy course. I did do scuba diving, but I got quite claustrophobic doing that. So I didn't love that. I was, I was quite good at it, but I actually didn't like that, which really disappointed me. Mm. Because I, I, I thought that was the, you know, the next thing. Yeah, almost the ultimate. Yeah. But snorkeling and then diving down deep and, oh, my God, I love it. I love the bit where you come up and blow the stuff out of the tube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> it's brilliant. But, I get slight vertigo, actually, if I go over too deep water. I, yes, I've had that. But, it, yes, but it hasn't worried me too much. But, yeah, you go, whoa. And sometimes... When I'd be, especially when you're swimming off rocks and stuff and as you go out further and you suddenly see the immensity of what's ahead of you, mm. just the black, black sea, if, especially if you've gone from shallow to deep. And I find that's quite scary, mm. actually. Not that I'm, I'm not scared of sharks or whatever, but just the sheer immensity of it. I've, I have been known to sort of scuttle back to rocks. <laughs> yeah. I nearly drowned when I was... Uh... In my early 20s, a group of us, oh. we all went swimming in Australia and we nearly drowned. So I've been very cautious of the sea ever since. So that, what you're describing, the going into the deep bit, I get a bit panicky, even now. I got rolled, me and my sister-in-law got rolled really badly in California. Oh, right. And yeah. we were really near the edge. And I've never been frightened of the sea before that. We were really near the edge. And I think my mum and my brother and people, well, they were all sitting chatting with the kids, not far away on mm. the beach. Mm. And we were knocked over by a wave. And I looked behind me and went, Ali, there's another one coming. And I remember rolling and rolling and rolling. And I could see the sky. The oh. sky was just there. And I couldn't get to it. I couldn't get up. And I did, Jenny, we could have died there. And mm. they wouldn't have known. 
we were so close to the edge. That's made me a bit more cautious. I used to love big waves, but the, the realisation that you just keep being bowled over and bowled over and you're under and it's just tumbling you and tumbling you. Yeah, yeah. Quite scary. What happened to you? Oh, we just, we made a rather stupid mistake of driving into a rip. <gasps> I had no idea what it was. I'd never come across it before. In Australia, they're common. Yeah. Can't remember what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to swim Sw- parallel to the shore. Yeah, you swim sideways and get out of it, really. But I didn't yeah. know that either, so I, I swam against it, and it was exhausting. And uh, I just made it to shore. I was a very good swimmer and very fit, luckily, at the time. So I got there, and uh, the others who were with me just kept going out. It wasn't a very rough day. It was quite calm. And I got some surfers and said, you know, my friends are drowning. And this bloke with a surfboard under his arm said to me, are you fair dinkum? <laughs> it nearly made me laugh at the time because it seemed so Australian. And then they jumped on their boards, went out and brought them back. It was very weird. Yeah. But you still like swimming? I love swimming, yeah. But I, I tend to swim more in a swimming pool than I do in the sea now. Right. Mm. Although I've got lots of friends who live near the sea and swim every day and they love it. Oh, I know loads of them now. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind. I I think I'd want a wetsuit and stuff. I mean, a lot of my friends swim in Hampstead Ponds still. (laughs) But I think if you can only get in for three minutes, which is about when it's very cold, about all you are allowed to do. I can see you feel brilliant after, but a bit me goes, well, I've got to go all the way out there and then get changed. And then then I get in in three minutes later, (laughs) I get out. And there's a lake I used to swim in during lockdown, God for the lake near Watford. It was amazing. Yes, I always find it strange when you meet people who can't swim. I've never learned to swim. Oh, I know. Because once you can swim, it's like people going, I don't know how to walk. I just crawl everywhere. Mm. I mean, but I was when I was little, when I was, I don't know, probably about seven or something, I was taught to swim. My dad used to take me to the army baths in Aldershot. And I was taught to swim by this absolutely terrifying army major sergeant person. And the worst thing was it was this massive pool with big sides and then all the parents would be sitting up the top looking down. But there were no steps out and Mm. it was very steep and he wouldn't let anyone help you. So if you, you know, when he went, everybody on the side, you would just be there. And especially if you're quite little like me, trying to get out and everybody watching you, (laughs) sheer panic. And also, because we didn't even have armbands then. We had rubber rings. So we, we used to start off with a rubber ring. And if you were doing something wrong, you've got this long pole and he'd hoik you through <laughs> your rubber ring. It was utterly terrifying, but you didn't have to learn to swim. Yeah. I used to throw Clement, my little boy. I used to take him from when he was about four months. Mm. Cruel, probably, but, you know, <laughs> dunking them underwater when they're four months old. Throwing them, just throwing them across the pool. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. He's a really good swimmer now as well. Oh, I wish I'd had the nerve to do the cover of Nirvana's album. Yes, that baby tried to sue, didn't he? Did he? Because they showed his willy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, about two years ago, I remember. <laughs> I think he lost his case. Yeah, the Nirvana baby. But I would love the idea of if I'd had the nerve to let my baby go almost, you know, like a week after it was born and just yes. put them in the water. Yeah. Because they do naturally hold their breath. They absolutely do. I mean, I didn't do that all by myself. There was a teacher there as well. I mean, poor babies, when you think of it, we used to go sit them on the side and go, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And then dunk him under the water. It's like burning witches. I don't know. Probably, he's probably deeply traumatised by hated all nursery rhymes. Now they hear that song and go into a deep panic. And go, ah! <laughs> But I, I did know a couple of people who were brought up properly abroad I'm in Barbados or whatever, and they were just thrown in a swimming pool and they were little and 
swam like fish. Yeah. I think that's how my brother learned to swim. I think somebody mistook him for somebody else and threw him in the deep end, thought it was a joke. Yeah. And he flailed around for a bit and they all laughed and eventually he got to the side and then thought, actually, I can get to the side, so I'm okay now. Wow, mm. yeah. This last summer, I bought a mask and a snorkel and my friend has a pool in the countryside and he let us use it. And I took my grandchildren to this pool and then I introduced them to a mask and a snorkel. And my oldest grandson put it on. And once you've done that thing of putting your head underwater and having the nerve to take a breath, because it's completely against everything, your instincts of saying, don't do this. That first intake of breath is hard to do, isn't it? Always when yeah. you put a mask and a snorkel on. Having done that and realizing I could hear him. As he calmed down and went, this is okay. We couldn't get him up. He just no. swam around, swam around and around. There's something as well, because you're in your own head and you hear your own breathing going. Yeah. And you can't hear anything else and you can see whatever you can see, even if it's just in a pool. And it's so calming and you're just in your own head. Mm. It's like doing meditation, isn't it? Yeah. And I love having fins as well, that proper good fins, because you suddenly go, oh, my God, I'm so fast and strong <laughs> and keeping your legs straight and doing and just feeling like a fish. Also, I always find in water, I always feel much more graceful than I actually am. You know, you feel like you're quite balletic and mm -hmm. smooth and flowing. And yeah, <laughs> much better than when I'm on dry land. Yes. It all seems to disappear then. <laughs> Don't we all? Well, let's put snorkeling in then. Yes, thank you. And being in water. How wonderful. Yeah. Joyous. Okay, so we've only got one thing to put in, and it's finally the thing that you'd like to put in and forget. Yeah, you see, I mean, I'm going to spare you the rant about my washer-dryer. <laughs> uh, we will just say the most expensive washing machine on the planet, if I really <laughs> wanted, for its drying purposes. And you can dry two pairs of pants in it for about 40 minutes at the cost of about £25, and they come out just Still wet, but really hot. <laughs> really hot. Anyway, I'm not going to put it in because it actually costs too much money and I can't afford another washing machine. I'm actually going to put in, and I don't know how much you can actually do about this if you can actually, you know, carry through with this. Mm -hmm. I'd really like to put insomnia. I'd love to get rid of that. Oh, how long have you suffered from insomnia? Oh, years, I think. And it's not all the time. It's just sometimes I go through bouts of it. And I've always been, you know, people who can fall asleep in front of the telly. Or people who just go to bed and go to sleep without thinking about it. I am very, very envious. I'm not saying I never do that, but, I mean, I'm renowned amongst my friends about being up in the middle of the night. I always have a battle with a cup of tea because once the image of a cup of tea comes into my head, it's like an addict. I, <laughs> I lie there thinking, it's three o'clock, don't be ridiculous, you can't have a cup of tea. But suddenly I don't want anything else in the world more than a cup of tea. And then I do it. And I think, I'll just have a cup of tea and then I'll go back to sleep. And then that never happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite industrious in the night. At, at, at that point, it's at half two in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. I'm quite happy. I enjoy the time on my own. And I'm industrious, not in the way that I go off and write a novel. That would be properly more that I'll empty the dishwasher mm -hmm. <laughs> and do things like that. And I feel fine. And I'm actually, I, I enjoy that time. It's just later you go, Oh, I'm going to feel like shit for the rest of the day. That's me. Maybe you have different sleep patterns. Well, you know, there's a thing about the second sleep, which used to be in Georgian times and things, I think. They always, 
I think naturally I do that. So naturally I'd go to bed at about 10, I suppose, or half 10, wake up at half two, get up, do some things for a couple of hours, then go back to sleep for another four-hour lot. And that used to be very common and is apparently the circadian rhythm of some people. And I think it probably is me. And European, Spanish people go to bed quite late and then they get up early because it's still cool. And then they work until sort of midday and and then they have another two, three hours. Yeah, and the school children as well, don't they? Yeah. And it, it makes sense, I think, for a lot of people, that system. I mean, I am one of those people who very annoyingly for you, uh, I get into bed, my head on the pillow and I go to sleep. Always. Do you never lie there fretting? The other day I complained that I couldn't get to sleep. I said, I just couldn't get to sleep last night. My wife said, well, how long? You you seem to go to sleep quite quickly for me. And I, I said, no, no, I was awake for minutes. <laughs> so that's how strange it is for me. I can get too tired as well, and my partner doesn't understand that. He goes, what do you mean you're too tired? I said, I've sort of gone past it, or I've read my book for too long. <laughs> yeah. you know? But also that thing of waking up in the middle of the night, I've done that occasionally when I've had something to do. I will wake up and think, I've got to do that thing when I wake up. Well, I'm awake now, I'll do it now. And I like that sort of uh, four in the morning till seven. I love that period. Yeah. But then you get to seven and you are absolutely knackered. Yeah, you're absolutely fucked. (laughs) (laughs) You might as well have a hangover. I always think, well, this is the same as a hangover. Yeah. But I guess the period between four and seven, it's like filming. I like getting up early. Mm. It still makes me feel like, you know, when you're a kid and you were woken up really early to go on holiday. (laughs) I always feel when I have to get up at like five for something that something exciting is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And also there's this holy grail of eight hours that we're all led to believe that's the only way you'll stay strong and healthy is to get eight hours sleep. You Mm. know, that's the the holy grail of it. And you feel like you've failed somehow. (laughs) You really can't do that. (laughs) And of course you do have the curse of every time you mention it to someone that I'm one of those people I go to sleep and then I wake up, I don't really get more than four hours sleep properly. They go, oh, like Margaret Thatcher. And you go, oh, Yeah, oh, no, yes, exactly. Mm. But I would quite like not to have it. Yeah. And then you read all these things going, how to stay looking young, get a good night's sleep. And you go, oh, well, I can't. <laughs> I'm going to suddenly collapse at yes. some point. My whole face and my skin and I'll go really, really wrinkly because I haven't done that one thing that they tell you you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody self-help books. Yes. Yes, particularly those ones that just say, all you have to do is believe. Yeah, I think it's quite damaging, all that. Just, I mean, of course, believe in yourself. Mm. That's great. If you can be a cup half full person, absolutely brilliant. I mean, I think I'm one. Um, if you can have hope, brilliant. But it ain't guaranteeing you nothing. No. You know, you can't all this throwing things out to the universe, and heaven knows I've tried it, you know, <laughs> or writing little affirmation things and putting them in your knicker drawer with your son's old teeth. <laughs> Never mind. Try burning your knickers. <laughs> well, I feel for you, the fact that you suffer from insomnia. And I know that people have routines, and everybody seems to have a different routine, and it's not necessarily a blessing that you just lie down and go to sleep. Because I can't, for example, read when I go to bed. Oh, can't you? No, I just fall asleep. Wow. Mm. Do you fall asleep in front of the telly? I strangely fall asleep whenever I sense there might be danger. Oh, really? Your fight and flight mechanism's not quite right, is it? It's not. You haven't got the flight bit. I haven't got the flight bit. I pretend I'm dead. Oh, why? What happened? Well, I was on a boat with my young children. 
And it got really rough and got quite frightening. And actually, you could tell from the way the crew were rushing about, you could tell that they hadn't expected it to be anywhere near as rough as this. And I thought, I can sense this thing's about to turn over. <gasps> and so I sat next to the life belts with my children, clung on to them, and then I went to sleep. Wow. Yeah. That's such a weird response. Mm. And that's your body bypassing your mind, isn't it? Completely. Yes. Whenever there's turbulence on an aeroplane, boom, I'm gone. That's brilliant. Not if I was a pilot, it wouldn't be great, would it? Oh, gosh, no. Don't be a pilot. Don't be a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how funny. You'd be rubbish if your house sat on fire or something, then. I don't know. I've never really been in a situation of extreme danger. So who knows? Yeah. Oh, dear. Now you've made me think that maybe my whole life is a mess. Yeah, you start, want to start being insomniac. And so I'm there. I'm, I'm ready. I'm awake. I'm alert. Yes. Oh, I'd be brilliant. <laughs> Gabby, you can come and stay in the spare room and then you can come and wake me up if I need it. Oh, yeah, I will. Yeah. I will. <laughs> <laughs> How lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really sweet That's, of you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And you said you wouldn't have anything to talk about and you wouldn't be interesting. No. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Gabrielle Glaster. Thanks for listening. Now, before you go, do rate or review this podcast. And if you've had fun, and I'm assuming you have if you've got this far, then do subscribe. And we'll make sure every new episode is available to you on the day it's released. Without ads, if you subscribe to Acast Plus for a very small monthly fee. There we go. Plugged it again. All money goes to keeping this podcast going, so it's very much appreciated. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook if you want to follow or befriend us. That's me and my time capsule individually. We're both very friendly and happy to chat or answer any questions you may have. The theme tune is available to download or stream on Spotify and was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens for Acast and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking with me to the very end. It can be a lonely place down here with the dregs of the credits, so I appreciate you giving up your time to listen to it. I mean, of course, you can stop any time you like. I mean, I'm okay on my own nowadays. I did once, many years ago, send my photo to a Lonely Hearts Club. I know, sounds a bit sad, doesn't it? Well, in fact, it was sad. They sent it back with a note saying, we're not that bloody lonely. Charming. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.